0: Welcome in to another episode of Behind the Plate, a Baseball America podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Glazer. It's very, very good to be back after taking last week off. We've got another great show for you today. We are pleased to be joined by former Mariners International Scouting Director Tim Kistner. Uh, We wanted to bring Tim on because he has some really, really unique experiences. Uh, As our listeners know, our first few episodes have featured amateur scouts that are based here in the U.S. and have signed... U.S. players. Tim has kind of a really interesting breadth of experience. Uh, He did work as an area scout for the Phillies. He signed a number of players, including Travis Darnot, Kyle Kendrick, Scott Matheson, among them. Uh, But he also worked internationally. He was a Pacific Rim coordinator for the Phillies. He then worked as a West Coast cross-checker for the Cubs. uh, But then made his way back out to the international circuit as the Mariners' international scouting director. Uh, Had some really, really cool experiences there. Uh, Scouting players all over the world. Obviously, the usual. Countries, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, but also some unique ones, such as Croatia. I signed a lot of really, really talented international players as the Mariners scouting director. He had a hand in signing Freddie Peralta, who's obviously become a very good starting pitcher for the Brewers. Uh, he had a hand in signing Luis Ranjifo, who's become a solid utility man for the Angels. And first and foremost, he had a hand in signing Julio Rodriguez, the reigning American League rookie of the year and the face of the Mariners franchise. Uh, Tim joined us to discuss all of his unique experiences including his own playing career. He was born and raised in Alaska. Certainly a unique baseball background there. Made his way down to the continental U.S., played at Oregon State, and uh, had a unique journey uh, into scouting, as we'll discuss in the podcast. Uh, we are pleased now to be joined by Tim from his home in Juneau, Alaska. Tim, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, Kyle, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. I know we've uh, known each other you know, over the phone and via text for quite a while, so it's finally nice to connect.
0: Yeah, for full disclosure for our listeners, uh, as someone who did the Mariner system for us at Baseball America for a number of years in the prospect handbook, I got to talk to Tim a lot, know Tim a lot. I remember talking to him back when uh, Pablo Lopez and Freddie Peralta were prospects in uh, in it all. So just to give you some background here, uh, you know, working with Tim for a number of years. And obviously uh, when they signed Rodriguez, I wrote the big feature last year and was kind enough to lend some insight into the process of signing him. And Again, Tim has a wealth of knowledge to, to share with us, and that's a big reason why we wanted to bring you on today. Before we dive into your history as a scout and all the players you signed, you know more than 20 big leaguers, I want to get into your background because it's really, really, really unique. You were born in Homer, Alaska, which is a town now of about 5,000 people, nowhere close to any of the population centers, about a four-hour drive to Anchorage, a long way from Juneau. Uh, I know you moved to Juneau when you were young. But I have to ask, how did your family end up in Homer, Alaska, and what were they doing there when you were born?
1: My dad was a fishery biologist. Uh, he studied he studied salmon, so basically like a, a salmon research biologist. And when I was uh, probably like a year old, they moved from Homer to Juneau, uh, which is the capital. And uh, no, we're not in Canada. But that's <laughs> that's a common uh, that's a common thing of people. Ask, Are you guys like in Canada up there? No, we're so uh, anyway. Yeah, so Juneau's been. I was born and raised in Juneau, and, um, and then when I graduated from high school uh, at, at 18, I, I left and went to uh, eventually to Oregon State and played there. But, uh, yeah, basically fisheries is what brought my dad and mom to Alaska.
0: Obviously, the baseball infrastructure is not huge in Alaska. There, there is some, but it's obviously not what you see in you know, the typical hotbeds, especially in the continental U.S., how did you first kind of become attracted to baseball living in Alaska and, and what was your playing experience like up there?
1: You know, I, I don't know why I loved it more than any other sport, but, um, like I would, I would skip Cub Scout camping trips and that kind of stuff if I was going to miss a game. And that was like at eight or nine years old. And, and, and it wasn't, like, you know, my dad had, had played some college football and, but it wasn't like, uh, we were from a baseball family or anything like that. I just, I just fell in love with the game at a very young age. And um, honestly, like we'd have to schedule family vacations around my schedule. And I, I guess I was a little obsessive about it when I was a young kid, but I just loved it. And growing up in Juneau, um, there's no grass fields. Uh, it, it's a very, very wet climate. Uh, the, all the fields in Juneau are, are basically hard dirt. And uh, finally uh, the, uh, the city and borough of Juneau passed a, a tax thing this year that next year, uh, one of the biggest fields in Juneau, like where the high school kids play and stuff, will be turfed finally. Um, but, but that'll be really kid, good for the kids in Juneau. But growing up here, it was a very, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you see fields in the Dominican Republic and kids are playing on some pretty, pretty rough surfaces. Growing up in Juneau, Alaska, we played on pretty equally rough surfaces.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, what was the infrastructure like? I mean, typical Little League up through high school. And what were some of your playing experiences like, especially with how cold and dark it gets in the winters?
1: You know in the summertime it we have we have really long periods of daylight uh, but it's, it's reversed in the wintertime when we had little League I played I played t-ball starting when I was I think eight years old and then went on to you know majors at 10 11 and 12 and um, when we had like senior little league um, 13 14 15 and then we had when I was a little kid there was American Legion but they went away from American Legion and they we played uh, big league which was a, a little league um sponsored association for like 16 to 18 year olds and uh i went to a baseball camp when i was after my 12 year old year or 13 year old year down in san bernardino california and and i loved it and i got to play with kids from it was like a two-week like live in camp and flew from from Juneau, alaska to like ontario california by myself at like 12 or 13 and went to this camp and and I loved it. And it, that this kind of like further instilled my love for baseball. Cause you're playing with kids from basically all over the West coast. And, and I, and I hit pretty well at this camp. And, and I was like, man, this is, this is really, I want to, I want to try to see what I can do with this. And, uh, but I came back to Juno and would just always, you know, I would work out and run and lift and all that kind of stuff, trying to make myself a little bit better than, than the other kids around trying, you know, trying to, I was a pretty late bloomer. Um, but, uh, when I was in high school, when I was 18, we won the state of Alaska, like big league, little league, and went to Salem, Oregon, and played like in the Western regionals. And so I had some pretty fun experiences like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, getting recruiter attention up in Alaska is, is not very, very easy. Uh, you ended up playing was a few years of junior college ball. What was that process like, you know, finding a junior college to play at and, and ultimately making that jump and moving to the continental U.S. to do so?
1: You know, I basically went up to... Uh, I went up to play for the uh, Anchorage Glacier Pilots. They were they were looking for like local players, uh, kids that were from the state of Alaska that wouldn't count against the roster. And this was you know like uh, Aaron Boone played for the Anchorage Glacier Pilots, and I mean Darren Dreifort was a number one pick back in the day. I mean so we there was very talented kids from you know the big you know Power Five schools, Power Five conference schools, and that sort of thing. Um, and I was up there playing, and I was. Wasn't exactly sure I was going to go. Maybe try to like walk on to New Mexico State because I had an uncle that lived in New Mexico in Las Cruces. But uh, one of our assistant coaches for the Anchorage Glacier Piles was a guy named Kevin Smallcom, and he kind of asked me, "Hey man, what are you what What are you going to do for college?" And I said, "I'm going to go walk on at uh, New Mexico State, I think." And he goes, "Why don't you come to my junior college? I, I'm the head coach at Mendocino Junior College in Northern California." You should you should do that I, i'd love to have you and so and I, so i did that and that was uh, probably the best uh, the best thing i did for for my playing career and played for coach smallcomb and then ended up going to oregon state and uh had, playing for jack riley there and, and had a blast
0: yeah, when you were at Oregon State, uh, they won the 1994, then Pac-10 uh, Northern Division title. Yeah. What were some of your experiences like that, again, going from, you know, again, Alaska being just kind of a, a smaller baseball area comparatively to what's in the continental U.S., making the jump to Pac-10 baseball, especially the time when, when the West Coast in particular was just loaded with, with future major leagues.
1: Yeah, you know, the two years I was at Oregon State, we had uh, two first rounders, Scott Chrisman, was a first-round pick with the White Sox in 1993, and and Mike Thurman, who pitched in the big leagues for the Yankees and Expos, was a first-round pick in 1994. Um, so you, I know you, you get to that point after you know playing. I think the junior college baseball in California was a really good experience and um, gives you perspective and what to expect and all that kind of stuff. So by the time I got to Oregon State, I felt like that was a place where I belonged and and you fit in. And um, I think college baseball in the, in the nineties compared to college baseball today is it's a lot different just in terms of funding and, um, you know, uh, the amount of exposure, like media exposure with, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff, obviously. Um, but I, I had an amazing time and a funny, you know, back in the, when I left Oregon state, I mean, it's like, Hey, let's, let's trade home phone numbers and addresses because no one had cell phones yet. And there was really no social media of any sort. So you lose track of your teammates and. Um, our assistant coach passed away uh, from Lou Gehrig's disease and his name was Mickey Riley. And we had a Memorial golf tournament and I played in the first one, probably nine years ago, like the first annual uh, Mickey Riley Memorial golf tournament. And I played in a foursome with three of my former teammates. And I don't think we had all been together for 20 years that in the same, in the same place, the four of us. And it took about 10 minutes. And it was like, it was like, it was yesterday. Uh, in terms of how close we were, the things we were teasing each other about, the jokes we were making, I played with Jimmy Champion, Brooke Knight, and Mike Thurman in this in this group of four. And I mean, I'll tell you what, it was the, the funnest four hours I've had in a really long time, just reminiscing and being with each other and then just seeing how everybody's doing, how everybody's lives had turned out.
0: Yeah, the bonds of, of teammates never really go away and you're able to kind of pick it back up. It, it's really an amazing phenomenon, to say the least. So you finished up at Oregon State, you were not drafted, you did end up spending a year uh, playing independent ball for Moose Jaw in Saskatchewan, Canada. Take us through sort of your post-college career and how you ended up in Moose Jaw playing that one year of independent ball.
1: You know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird track. I, so after uh, Oregon State, I was like, I, you know, I didn't get drafted, I didn't have a great Career at Oregon State by any means, and I'm I'm going to be a coach. That's my I want to be at the time I wanted to be a high school baseball coach and teacher. I thought that's kind of what I wanted to do, and um, through connections and everything, I end up at University of Kansas as a volunteer assistant coach. And I mean that that, that next year after playing, so um, I'm I'm learning the coaching ranks. And uh, Dave Bingham was the head coach at University of Kansas, and I mean he I he helped me let recruit I helped recruit. You know, I coached first base during games. I mean, it was helped review video, worked on, it, worked with the outfielders. You know, it was a, it was a great experience to go from Oregon State to the Big Eight at the time. Loved it that summer after the season's over. I go coach as an assistant coach in the Cape Cod League with you know great players. And so here I am thinking, you know, this is this is a this is a great thing. Like I University of Kansas to the Cape Cod League. Now I'm thinking I want to be a division one head coach after kind of getting that experience. Now I've kind of changed my, my goals in life and I want to be a D1 head coach. Well, I come back to Lawrence, Kansas after the Cape Cod and the day I get back, uh, Coach Bingham resigns and uh, decides that he's going to walk away from college coaching. And so they're going to bring in a new head coach who ended up being Bobby Randall. And at the time, you know, like there's no guarantees that um, he's going to want me on his staff And I was and I only had my bachelor's degree, so I went back and uh, took a year off and got my master's degree at Eastern Oregon State College in the Grand Oregon. So I got it in education. It's like a one year intensive master's program. And so that that while that year, I'm like, you know, I want to keep my foot in baseball and that kind of stuff. And so there's an independent league called the Prairie League and they want me as an assistant. They want me as a coach as soon as my master's done. So I go up to Moose Jaw to be a coach. So I've taken a full year off. I've coached the University of Kansas and now I've gotten my master's degree. So I'm two years removed from Oregon state. I've stayed in, I mean, I've stayed in shape and I'm two years older and probably actually in better shape, stronger, faster, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I get up there and after like a first, the first week and I'm like taking batting practice and I'm talking with the guy who's the manager and he's like, man, I think, I I think you should play. (laughs) And I'm like, so I end up, I ended up like instead of going from being a coach to a player and I ended up playing for, you know, a month out of the season.
0: Yeah. What was that experience like? You know, you get to say, Hey, you play professional baseball.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had kind of given up on, as, as a younger person, you always have the dream of playing professional baseball and then you get up there and you, you start to realize like, man, some of these guys that have signed up here, like I'm a, I'm a better player than even though I'm a couple years older. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was pretty awesome. I remember, uh, I hit a couple home runs and I mean, I was not a great player by any means, but yeah, I did. I, I, I got paid to play baseball for like for a month. So that was a pretty awesome experience.
0: I have to ask it like playing in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and what's your best story?
1: Man, you know, for coming from Alaska, um, (laughs) we think we have big mosquitoes, but in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, the mosquitoes are like birds. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a cool ballpark. It was really small, uh, but it was like a grandstand and it kind of went from first base to third base. And so maybe our crowds were 1500 people, but it felt like more and uh, passionate fans. They, they love playing. Um, I mean, it's independent baseball. So there's a lot of people that have chips on their shoulders. Um, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, pitching inside, hitting guys, a lot of, you know, bench clearing type things. Um I, I just the, the one thing that sticks. I had a I had a home run uh, in a game, like in the late in the game, and then uh, to tie it up or something like that. And then ended up hitting a single later, like an extra innings and stealing a base. And I, I don't remember if we won or lost, but I just remember having two hits, like late in the game, hitting a home run, stealing second, but like the next time up after hitting a single, and just thinking like being on second base, looking at everybody after stealing this base, going like, this is this is awesome. Like I, I could never play again. And just like the experiences that I've had over like last month playing was, was pretty awesome. Absolutely. So,
0: you know, you finished up in moose jaw. And after that, you'd mentioned you had will come a coach, you know, the path to that, that between what happened at Kansas, then going to moose jaw to be a coach then becoming a player, you know, you, you kind of had a couple different avenues. You ended up going into scouting. Take us through that transition. How did you end up going from there into the scouting world?
1: So uh, Kevin Smolcombe, who was the the head coach at uh, Mendocino Junior College and my assistant with the Anchorage Glacier Pilots, um, he's now he's the head coach uh, of the Anchorage Glacier Pilots. Uh, You know, it's like I think it's the summer of 98. And he asked me, he goes, hey, man, I I want you to come coach for me at Mendocino. And I want you to coach with me this summer in, in the Alaska League. So I go up with them in the summer of 98. And I'm coaching the assistant coach for the Anchorage Glacier Pilots. Um, and, uh, one are it's the end of the season tournament and I'm sitting behind home plate watching a couple of teams that we're going to play. So all the teams in Alaska are in Anchorage for this last week, all the scouts come up where they could evaluate all the talent, like in one place. And I sat next to Logan white in the stands. Didn't know Logan white at all at the time. I think he was the West coast cross checker for the Orioles. And uh, we strike up a conversation and we just kind of hit it off. And he's like, man, have you ever thought about being a scout? Not really. Uh, we formed a friendship. A couple weeks later, I ended up interviewing for a job with the, with the Orioles uh, just simply because of my connection with Logan. And I didn't get it, but then you, your name kind of gets on the hopper that you've interviewed for a scouting job, um, interviewed for another job with another organization, didn't get it. And then, kind of out of the blue, the Phillies called me and said, Hey, we were talking to the Twins. And they said you interviewed very well. You had a couple interviews with them, and we'd like to interview you for a job. So I did, and I was offered the job. Uh, by Jimmy Fergosi Jr. who passed away last year he was a very great friend of mine. Um, and uh, that was the starting that was that was 1999. Um, a funny Logan story. So I go from sitting next to Logan at Mulcahy Stadium in Anchorage that summer and that's really I mean I really credit to Logan for kind of getting me involved. And uh, I, would, I think it was like 2017 uh, with the Mar- I'm with the Mariners and i fly into osaka um to go watch fujinami with uh with the hanshin tigers and i'm late to the game and because i just you know go to the airport drop my stuff off take a cab to the ballpark and i walk into koshien stadium and i sit down and like you know i'm a little rattled it's like the second inning i've missed the first inning fujinami's pitching and I look down and like Logan's like three seats down from me. And now we've seen each other over the years, right? It's not like I haven't seen him since Anchorage, but he kind of leans and he's like, Hey man, he goes, you've come a long ways from Anchorage, Alaska. We're in Osaka, Japan together. Um, and it was just kind of a, you know, full, you know cool, full, full circle type deal. Um, connecting with Logan and Osaka after meeting where we met.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Again, it's, those connections, they, they tend to surface after years and years and years, whether it's former teammates, guys who helped you get into the game. There's a lot of lo- long-time people that stick around, and uh, it's fun seeing them kind of, you know, what, what the journey looks like. There's no doubt. Absolutely. You joined up with the Phillies. Um, what was your first territory? What were you doing first right off the
1: bat? Right off the bat, it was uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Western Canada, and um, I was – you know, I was I – was- Younger, I think I was 26 or 27, and just, I, I was so thrilled to have a full-time scouting job, and for me, that's really all, all there was in life, was work, 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 work. And um, Marty Wolliver was the national cross-checker when I got hired, Mark Ar- Mike Arbuckle was our scouting director, uh, Jimmy was Fergosi was the, I think he did the West Coast, and um, I was always willing to do whatever they asked. Uh, and so I remember Jimmy calling me in, I think it was 2002 and I'm in the press box in Seattle because they used to always give us one major league team. And so I'm doing the Mariners living in Seattle. I'm sitting in the press box for the game right now, like my game card and all that kind of stuff. And Jimmy calls me up and he's like, Hey man, uh, you got a passport? And I'm like, yeah, I have a passport. And he's like, uh, Hey, can you be in uh, LA tomorrow? And I'm like tomorrow, like literally this is, i go uh yeah i can be a what, what's up and he goes uh hey so we're gonna go to japan and i'm like what like so <laughs> we go to japan and we were going to see if roberto Pettigini, who is a venezuelan hitter if he was if he could be like the phillies next first baseman i think we were thinking about moving on from travis lee at the time and so jimmy and i flew to japan and at the time like there was no apps. Our uh, our phones didn't work. Our laptops didn't work. We we bought some calling cards to like call home. We didn't even know where the occult swallows were going to be playing when we got there. I mean, it was. And I remember we're down in Hiroshima and we're watching batting practice. And I go, well, hey, I'm going to go in the press box and get some stats, like you know, like, stat, like rosters and stats. And and Jimmy goes, yeah, why don't you do that? So I walk into the press box in Japan, which, which I mean, if you've ever been to Japan, like everything's extremely like regulated and, you know, you just don't go wandering around. We didn't. I think we just bought tickets. We didn't have credentials or anything. So I walk in the press box and everybody looks at me like I have two heads and uh, I see I do it. They have like stat. They have like stat packs like laid out. And I go over and grab a couple from Jimmy and I just like at a, at a major league ballpark and uh, everything's in Japanese right so i walked back out sit down next to him and i'm like hey man like everything's in japanese and he's like what did you expect <laughs> We're in japan. but he just kind of let me go like here i'm trying to do my job trying to be proactive get us our uh, our rosters and everything and uh, everything was in japanese so anyway it was a it was a pretty uh that first trip to japan was a pretty amazing experience and i just i came back and i told uh, Mike Arbuckle and Marty Williver, I absolutely loved it. I wrote reports on like uh, Kuroda, uh, Akinori Iwamura was a young player at the time. And so we basically had gone over just to watch Petagini. I had seen some other players that I thought were pretty interesting. And so I wrote all these reports and uh, and just and turned them in. And Marty and Mike were like, hey, if you ever want to, you know, do you ever want to go back? You know, so I ended up going back a couple of years later with Billy Moore and kind of just doing pro coverage over there. And then it just kind of turned into a, thing that I started going to Japan and Korea at a pretty young point in my scouting career.
0: Yeah. You eventually became the uh, Philly specific rim coordinator. I mean, what were those experiences like going over to Asia as frequently as you did seeing the style of baseball over there and just how did that kind of, you know, build, build your scouting uh, Rolodex, if you will, your scouting knowledge.
1: I just, I think the more different kind of players you see, like you said, the Rolodex, the Rolodex gets fuller and fuller. So you know, obviously, the way hitters hit in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan—they they have that a different style of hitting. They they really drift off their backside. Uh, they have more movement going forward in the box, uh, but the, but they always do a, a very good job of keeping their hands back. You know I mean? so they could, their body can leak and get out in front, and all those sorts of things. But from a very young age, like they. they preach hand-eye coordination and and they preach contact and they can extend at-bats with the best of them, you know, two strikes. And you're watching nine, 10, 11 pitch at-bats because all they're trying to do is foul off and make contact, waiting for the pitcher to make a mistake. Um, I remember seeing a drill at a Korean high school baseball game where basically down the right field line, and I I have pictures of it, but no video. Everybody's lined up like they're playing catch, except the kids on the foul line, all have bats and the guys out, you know, second base extended, have the ball in a glove and they're basically playing synchronized long pepper where (laughs) at one point everybody in the field throws the ball to the guy with the bat on the foul line and they make contact and they hit it back to the guy with the glove. So it's like, you know, if there's 20 kids, you got 10 groups of guys playing long pepper synchronized and the bat can. First of all, the kids in the field, all have to throw a a strike or a hitable pitch the guys on the foul line all have to make contact with back control and hit it back. And literally it was the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. Like I don't think kids in college could do it here. So just the, I think the, uh, the attention to detail and the attention to fundamentals in, in Asia is something that I really appreciated. The pitchers throw amazing amount of strikes. Um, they repeat their deliveries. They may not throw as, ha- throw as hard a lot of times, but they throw strikes uh, they're always around the zone. The hitters make contact. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's weaker contact, but they do, they extend that bats, and they know how to put the ball in play and um, try to make, try to put the pitcher in a position to make them Um, So I just think those experiences watching tons of other players with a different style of playing just when you're, so when you're watching kids in the U S you just, you remember those things and like, you're like, gosh, man, uh, I remember Kaz Matsui in Japan, uh, like what he looked like and then how he looked in the big leagues and some adjustments that he had to make. So you just apply all those things that you've learned in terms of like what works and what doesn't work to your current scouting. And I think it just kind of helps give a broader perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, during your stint as a Pacific Rim coordinator for the Phillies over there, you also did still do some stuff in the U.S. as well. I know you signed Travis. You were Travis Darno signing scout. Um, what was that dynamic like, you know, still doing some stuff in the U.S. simultaneously?
1: Trying to balance it was always was very difficult because um, yeah, I, I, at that point in my career, I felt like, uh, you know, I think the same year I signed Darno, uh, signed Vance Worley, uh, signed Anthony Ghost the year before. And at, at that point in my career, I was, I was going back and forth a lot to Asia. And as, at that point in your career, you're like, man, if I see a player like once or twice for the draft, I'm, I'm pretty good. Like I have my mind made up and I feel like, you know, my uh, my priority should be Asia because we're not getting as many looks at those players. But then again, you're dealing with like two different departments. You're dealing with the international department and the amateur department. And each one of the people running those departments have their own expectations. So anytime you're working with multiple departments, I mean, you have to have like really, really good communication and probably an assistant GM that uh, that oversees all that. That's making sure that uh, everybody's on the same page because I do remember one time I was in, I was in Korea at a high school tournament and uh, there was some expectations for me to be seeing a player that I had already seen. And uh, I think my scouting director called me up and said, Hey man, uh, are you, I'm going to be at this game tomorrow. Can you pick me up at the airport? And I'm like, uh, I can't, I'm in Korea right now. So. Um, again, you just have to have really good communication when you're doing, you know, working from multiple departments like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, you know, comparing, you know, you're seeing amateurs in Asia while simultaneously seeing amateur players here in the United States. How did you compare them? Did you have to fight comparing them because it's two completely different backgrounds and cultures? What was that dynamic like just in terms of simultaneously evaluating those two very different talent
1: pools? I think you just have to focus on the tools and while the players in Korea or Japan might look differently in the way they do it. I mean, ultimately it's what the, what the outcome is or what the tool is. So I think you just try to take away the differences in how guys do it and focus more on their tool package and what they're capable of doing. So I think, again, I think it it only helped, um, you know, it just, it just helped, this player in Japan or Korea may be able to do this This player in the U S may be able to do this. Um, And again, I just think it the more players you see helps broaden your perspective. So um, I enjoyed it. Another thing I enjoyed was, you know, we, with the Phillies we'd go to spring training and we'd watch our minor league guys in spring training during the season, like during the scouting season. And I remember, um, I remember thinking when I I was scouting Southern California, we had, there was a player named Justin Sellers from uh, Huntington Beach High School. in hunting, From Huntington Beach, I can't remember which high school I went to in Huntington Beach. And he was, he was a smaller guy. And I remember thinking, man, he's too small. But this guy could really play defense. And he could throw, and he loved the game, and he played with passion. And I remember going to spring training and watching all of our minor league shortstops. And I'm like, so I go to spring training, I see all of our minor league shortstops. And I'm like, dude, Justin Sellers would be like the second best guy here. So I go back to this, you know, the scouting season, and that just really helped me put things in perspective like, hey, man, Justin Sellers is good despite the fact that he's 5'8". That's not a big deal. If we put him in spring training right now, he'd be one of our top three prospects probably. So I, I always enjoyed that. It was just like a great refresher to go see what you have in the minor leagues like dur- even during the middle of scouting season. It was well worth taking the five days off to go out to, Florida, out to Clearwater and see what we currently have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It really helps you calibrate when you're able to see what's going on at the pro side and compare it back to the amateur side. I know it's something that is very, very important for sure. You So you were doing you know amateur stuff on the West Coast. You were the Pacific Rim Coordinator. You moved over to become the Cubs West Coast Cross Checker after a few years, um, going back solely to working on the domestic side. How did that transition come about and, and what did you kind of make? Did you miss going over internationally? Because you ended up going back, which we'll get to in a second. But um, just what was that transition like and how did it come about?
1: So I had worked for the Phillies for 10 years and Marty Wolver had been my scouting director. And I, mean, I consider Marty like a dad. And uh, I got a phone call from Tim Wilkin who was a scouting director for the Cubs. And I really didn't know Tim um, had always just heard about Tim and seen him at games. And I mean, he's extremely well-respected and he's like, Hey, he goes, Hey, I, I got permission to, and, he, and he's very just, he's a, he's a normal guy. He's just, he's like, it's an easygoing guy. He goes, Hey Tim, I, this is Tim Wilkin. i I have permission to, uh, to interview you for a scouting job that we have open. And I said, Oh yeah, you know, what, what's that? And he told me though, you know, the West coast job and asked if I could fly down to Arizona for an interview. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of, I fly, I fly down to Phoenix. I'm staying at the Scottsdale Marriott suites in old town. And he goes, Hey, right before the interview, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you my room number we're just i have like a suite we can interview in there and that's cool so i'm wearing like coat and tie and uh he sends me a text and literally the room is across the hallway so i walk across the hallway and i walked in and he's wearing like cubs shorts and a t-shirt and i'm in a suit And he's like oh man like you you shouldn't have got dressed up so anyway we sit there and my job interview was we watched baseball the night for two hours and we talked about the game and we talked about different players and we talked about philosophy. I mean, it was the coolest interview I've ever had because what do we do in baseball as scouts? We, we watch baseball, we talk about baseball, we evaluate players and he and I sat there for two hours together talking about the best of the best on television, what we had, we, what we thought about them, how they could be better, so on and so forth. So anyway, working for Tim was amazing. And as much respect for Marty that I had, I, I have an equal amount of respect for Tim Wilkin. And um, I stepped into a job where all five scouts on the West coast were at least 20 years older than I was um, in term, And so these guys, the, the West coast scouts, uh, area scouts of the cubbies were extremely experienced and veteran dudes. And the, the one thing that I learned, uh, real quick was we used to have like every Sunday night, you can all the area scouts are going to send me their schedule and they're going to tell me their plan for the week. Obviously plans change, but th- that's just kind of the way we're going to communicate. And that was something that came from Wilkin on down Monday or Sunday night emails. So Ricky Schroeder is with Texas still. And Ricky was in Northern California and Ricky, one of the best area scouts I've ever worked with. And he knows everything about every player And he signed a ton of big leaguers. And we're like week three in and Ricky hasn't sent me an email about like what he's doing for that week. And so I call him up like on Sunday and I'm like, Hey, Ricky, you know, what's, what's going on? He's like, Hey man, uh, tomorrow I'm doing this Uh, on Tuesday. I'm doing this and a home visit. And then I'm going to this night game at Fresno state. And then Wednesday, I mean, Ricky knew his schedule inside and out. Ricky knew and Ricky's working like, all day long every day and so what I learned was instead of getting all you know pissed that Ricky wasn't sending me a schedule I just I would call Ricky on Sunday night and I would write his schedule down and I would I would send out the, the email to you know the cross checkers and scouting director for Ricky Ricky wasn't great at doing emails but Ricky was a great scout is a great scout and so that was one thing I learned like it's not for it's not for them to adjust to the way I do things. As, you know, as a, you know, a cross checker, I need to adjust to the way they do things. I want to get the best out of each one of them. And so for me, that was the best to, the, for, to get the best out of Ricky was for me to call him and for me to do a schedule for him because he knew what he was doing. He just needed somebody to put it on paper for him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're with the Cubs. I, I, I do want to go back. One thing I, I didn't get a chance to mention earlier, but I think it's important with the Phillies, you won a World Series, right? You were part of their scouting staff in 2008 when they won the World Series. Um, What was that experience like for you, watching the Phillies win and and knowing you played a part in helping make it happen?
1: Yeah, that was amazing, I'll be honest. Uh, I was – and I also was – I was an advanced scout during the playoffs. And so I had – about two weeks before the season gets over, I get a phone call from – I can't remember who, whether it was Ruben or it probably wasn't Ruben. uh, He was the GM at the time. No, it was Pat. Pat was the general manager, so maybe it was Ruben. He was the assistant general manager. Um, he sends that. We have a giant conference call, and it's like, "Hey, uh, Tim Kistner and Billy Moore, you guys are assigned the Dodgers, and um, yeah, Forgosi and uh, Chuck Lamar have you know they um, whoever else is in the playoffs." So I did the Dod- Dodger hitters, and Billy did the Do- the Dodger pitchers, and we watched every Dodger game for the last two weeks of the season. We watched the playoffs, and then we met with. Uh, Charlie Manuel and the coaching staff in Philadelphia about like, hey, here's how, here's how we're going to go about beating the Dodgers. So I mean, I was you know involved in those those like those pregame meetings, and I mean that, that was an amazing experience. Um, you know, it was with the two. We, and Pat's idea was he wanted us to keep scouting even while we were playing them in case we noticed something different. Um, so Billy Moore and I were you know sitting behind home plate, basically working the games uh, that we were playing the Dodgers. And you know, one story, talk about like laying out your your beliefs online is uh, they had acquired Manny Ramirez in August or July 31st, and Manny hit like 500 in August and September. He was on fire. Matt Kemp had gotten off to a very slow start and had really picked it up late in the season. And Matt Kemp was wearing out right center. And uh, so on our spray charts, you know, I had said, "Hey, man, we want Victorino's playing center." We want, uh, we want him to, to shade to, to right center against Kemp. And uh, Davey Lopes, you know, great major leaguer, great base stealer. He did the defensive positioning for the outfield. And he uh, he said, no, nah, man, he goes, uh, in this meeting, he goes, Matt Kemp's a pull hitter. And, and uh, I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm, the last, you know, 21 games he has, in the air, he has worn out right center. So Ruben is like the assistant general manager and Ruben's like, man, it sounds like we need to shade Victorino and right center. So game one of the playoffs we're playing against the national league championship series, Victorino's actually playing Kemp, like a little bit pull in center field. So it's it's fine. And So after the game, Pat's like, Hey, uh, do you guys notice anything? And I'm like, yeah, Victorino, he's out of position in center field. And and Davey's pretty convicted in his beliefs. And I'm pretty convicted in my beliefs. And uh I'm not gonna say it got heated, but Ruben stepped in and goes, Look, Tim and Billy have been watching the Dodgers for the last, you know, three weeks. Victorino's playing, he's shading Matt Kemp to, to right center. So game two, Billy and I are sitting behind home plate in uh in, in Philly. Sure enough, first inning or Kemp comes up, Victorino goes to shade over to right center, right? So he's Going, he's, he's playing the you know what, what, what kind of where we said, and Billy elbows me, and he goes, "You better hope he doesn't pull the ball right here." And you want to talk about like there's forty five thousand fans, they have no idea who Tim Kissner is, but I'm sitting there behind home plate, and I am I'm probably sweating bullets, hoping like Matt Kemp doesn't double into the left field gap, and he he didn't, and it all it all worked out fine, but uh and we ended up winning the World Series, uh beating. Tampa. And I mean, you want to talk about like something you'll never forget. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was, there and had watched, you know, all the playoff games the Phillies were involved in uh, since the national league championship series got to go on the field with my dad after the game and take photos, took my dad in the clubhouse. My dad got to meet Charlie Manuel and Carlos Ruiz, which he always still talks about to this day. Um, it was just an amazing experience to be, to be part of that and have my ring and all that.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, having that winning world series ring, I mean, that's what everyone dreams of in an organization. And, and you'll always have that. You, you have that experience with the Phillies, you move over to the Cubs, then you moved over to the Mariners. You became their international scouting director, which is obviously a big step up. And it also brought you back into the international arena. You had had experience in the Pacific Rim. Now you were going to be responsible for everything globally. Uh, you ended up traveling to more than 30 countries in your, in your career. What led you to take that job? And, and how much did you enjoy, you know, kind of the breadth of baseball you got from that? Because you really did see the whole world at least and the yeah. whole world of baseball.
1: I say. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, I was walking into a restaurant with all the West coast guys for the cubbies. We were, we were at a tournament and we were all covering this tournament. And I, and I got a text message from, uh, from Tommy Allison and Tommy, is the other Alaskan in scouting and with the Dodgers now. And Tommy was a longtime scouting director and front office guy. And he says, Hey, can I talk to you? I, I need to talk to you. And I said, can it wait? And he goes, no, I, I really need to chat with you. He goes, I'm over here at the Peoria stadium and I'd love to chat with you. So um, I tell my guys that, you know, that I was taking the West coast guys out for dinner. I said, Hey man, I, I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta take care of something. And I had no idea what Tommy wanted, but, I went and sat next to him and he was sitting, he was, he had his wife with them and he's just watching like the junior college all-star game at the Peoria Classic. And uh, he says, Hey, you want to, uh, you want to be the Mariners international director? And I mean, you we talk about being completely caught off guard. And I'm like, uh, and he goes, um, Bob Ingle is, is no longer with the Mariners and Bob was like a Long-time international director, long-time scouting director, great scout, and so Tommy kind of plants the seed, and he goes, you know, if you're, he goes, send me a text and let me know if you're like, think about it, me, and I'm like, well, of course I'm interested. It's, it's, you know, becoming a director, of course I'm interested. So he kind of like planted the seed a little bit, and uh, then like three or four days later, I get a phone call from Jason McLeod with uh, the Cubbies, and he's like, hey, the Mariners have asked permission to interview you. And I'm like, wow. Like, I, Tommy was serious. Like, and so that was Jack called, was the general manager. He calls me up. He's like, Hey Tim, he goes, uh, you live in Seattle? and I lived in Seattle. I was the West coast guy for the cubbies living in Seattle. And I'm like, yeah, I, I live here in Seattle. He's like, can you have dinner tonight? And I said, yeah, I can have dinner tonight. Absolutely. So I had dinner with Jack and Jeff Kingston at this, uh, restaurant in Bellevue. And I mean, it was, it was hard to eat cause they're firing questions at you and you're my I think my halibut got cold, but, uh, and then, so they have, the a team has a week to interview you to, basically to, for this process. So I don't hear a thing from Jack, something I, I didn't get it. Like he obviously wanted to hire somebody differently. And like on the seventh day, he calls me back and he's like, Hey, can, can I talk to you again? And so we, we had one more interview and he hired me. Um, and to, to go from being the West Coast guy to being an international director. Um, now you're overseeing a department where, you know, your job is probably 50% scouting and 50% administration. Uh, I'll be honest. If like, and I basically went straight to the Dominican cause I had to hire a bunch of scouts. And when I took the job, like they only had one scout in the Dominican Republic and some guys had left. And I, so I had a lot of work to do and if, I'll be lying. if uh, I, I went to the Dominican for like 23 straight days when I got the job. And if, Those early mornings when I woke up those first three weeks, if I didn't feel like completely head spinning because you're trying to see players and then the members want me to watch some winter league games. You're trying to hire a staff. Um, But I remember Jeff Kingston being outstanding in terms of like just helping me keep things in perspective. He was our assistant general manager at the time. Tommy was a great resource for me to use. We had Joe McIlvain as well who had been a former general manager and scouting director was one of Jack's special assistants. And he was extremely helpful, just those, uh, those early days and helping me just kind of get my feet on the ground. But uh, it was an awesome, awesome six years in Seattle. Um, got to travel the world. Uh, I got to meet uh, Eddie Toledo, who we hired to be our Dominican supervisor. Uh, I consider Eddie my Dominican dad. Um, Eddie's a tremendous scout and a tremendous friend. Um, And just some of the people that I got to work with those, you know, those times in Seattle with all the especially, you know, you're in the Dominican more than anywhere else, but uh, I was fortunate to to see a lot of other parts of the world as well.
0: Yeah. What's the most uh, unique country you got to visit as your, as the international scouting director for the Mariners?
1: I, I went to a tournament in Croatia. It was like a world cup baseball tournament, but it was like, Twenty-three and under, and there was a team from Japan that was going to be there, and so I went to the, this. I went to Zagreb, Croatia, which I mean is not a baseball hotbed by any means. But I remember thinking, like, man, I've, this is a long ways from home. Probably that I remember being in some mountain town in Colombia that I I don't remember the name of this place, uh, but it was like a three-hour car ride from Medellin, and uh, I remember being in this ballpark, and it was like an old minor. It was a really cool old minor league ballpark. And there was not another West, uh, not another light-skinned person there. I mean, it was. Uh, I was fully in Colombia. Uh, they everybody looked at me like, "Where the heck are you from?" And I mean, it was it was pretty cool. I mean, but just thinking, man, you're a long ways from Medellin, let alone from you know the next person that speaks English, because there was no English spoken there.
0: Did you ever find yourself in any hairy situations uh, across the world during your time as international scouting director?
1: Couple times in Venezuela. Um, one time I was there when uh, Leopold Lopez tried to overthrow um, what oh, God. Uh, Maduro and they had they had protests. It was 2014 or 15. And I was in Valencia, Venezuela, at the Embassy Suites Hotel. And these riots and protests broke out. They're burning tires. I mean, it was it's was pretty scary. So I called Major League Baseball security. Uh, told them what was going on. They were, they were aware of what was going on. And so then the next day, one of our scouts drove me to Caracas. I stayed one day in Caracas. And then, um, I don't know who these two guys were, but they were arranged by major league baseball. And I, I was told they were like Venezuelan FBI. Uh, but these two guys, uh, come to my hotel room at the Caracas Marriott. They're wearing fishing vests, which means if you're wearing a fishing vest in Latin America means you're carrying guns under your arms. And uh, they take me to the Caracas airport uh, and they basically park on the curb, walk me in, check into Delta Airlines, go through like, you know, TSA with me, uh, immigration with me. And they sit with me at my gate until I get on the flight to Miami. Um, But that was I think I was the only as far as I know, during that time, I was the only uh, director in the country when those protests broke out. Wow.
0: Getting, getting escorted out of the country by the equivalent of the Venezuelan FBI. That's certainly a member, to say the least. So you had so many high points yeah. as international Mariscount director. Again, talk about signing Freddie Peralta, Luis Renjifo was in the Big Leagues with the Angels, another player you signed. But the pinnacle of it all was being one of the signing scouts for Julio Rodriguez. Um, I wrote about it last year in our story, but, you know, just – for our broader audience here on the podcast, I mean, what are your memories of Julio as an amateur, the process of signing and scouting him and, and then what it's been like seeing him progress into the player he has?
1: You know, I think the the thing that sticks out the most about, <clears throat> about Julio was how he was a name and I could never see him. And all of our other scouts, Eddie Toledo, Tommy Allison, Tom McNamara, Scott Hunter, I absolutely love this guy. But every time I would be in the Dominican or try to make a trip to go to the Dominican, I just, he, somebody else was, another organization was watching him. And so I, I had limited opportunities myself to lay eyes on Julio. And the, the two times that I saw Julio within basically like an eight day period, um, it was everything that those, that, you know, that the, our experienced scouts had said and probably more. And I didn't sit down and interview many players when I, <clears throat> when I was doing that job, I relied on, on our scouts to do the interviews and the makeup and all that kind of stuff. But with Julio um, and the amount of money that it was going to be, uh, I wanted to make sure that I, I knew him as well. And just based on the fact that I only really had seen him twice. And the interview with Julio was one of the most unbelievable things I was ever a part of. And I've talked about it in the past. But basically, for me, when I asked him, what's uh, what's some advice that your parents have passed along to you that you'll you know hold true? And he basically said, um, the people that you surround yourself have to be good people. And, and you have to, <clears throat> you have to listen to your heart when it comes to who you surround yourself with, because if you surround yourself with bad people, <clears throat> you're going to change as a person. This is a 16 year old kid. And I'm like, Holy cow. Like this kid's <clears throat> he's pretty, uh, he's grounded. He's, he's very grounded. Despite being a great baseball player, he's very grounded. And it was at that point after this hour interview that I brought Caesar Nicholas, who was our manager in the Dominican summer league into the room to ask him some questions and i walked out and called tommy allison who was now overall scouting with the mariners and i said tommy um we, we gotta we gotta make sure that we get julio on july 2nd and tommy tommy agreed and goes I, I totally agree with you that julio needs to be a mariner so um we basically all went all in with all of our chips and uh, made julio a mariner
0: clearly it's been a success and uh i have to ask has that been the highlight of your scouting career, you know, being part of signing Julio and, and, you know, everything he's accomplished.
1: Julio was a great player and is a great player. And it wasn't like the Mariners knew something that nobody else knew. I think all 30 teams would have loved to have Julio Rodriguez. So yeah, sure. Watching Julio or seeing, watching Julio on TV and, and uh, seeing him on the cover of, you know, different baseball, baseball, America and sports illustrated and like, you, when you see him when those things, like, man, I, I was, I was the one that basically said, you know, yes, Tommy Allison. And I said, yes, on this, like, that's awesome. But like, there's also other players that like Scott Matheson, like he went to, he went to Japan and had like an amazing career. And he came, he was a 17th round draft pick. And he persevered through two Tommy John injuries and absolutely crushed, and, you know, did really, really well in Japan. So it, it's not, the Julio's, by far probably the most talented player I've ever been involved in signing. But then you look at players that like they were able to take care of their families or they were able to, maybe they didn't get to the big leagues, but they were able to get a college education with the college scholarship money that, that we gave them. Um, There's one player in particular, I won't, I won't say his name, but he lived in a really, really rough part of Los Angeles. I mean, really rough part. And he only had a, he only played for a couple of years in the minor leagues, but with his college scholarship money, he went and became a firefighter and he was able to move his mom out of this really rough area and then like, basically take care of his family. And, you know, he wasn't the greatest baseball player I ever signed, but the fact that, you know, we did sign him and we gave him money to go to college after his playing days were over and he ends up being able to take care, of his, take care of his family and his mom and little brother and provide for them better. That's equally as fulfilling for me.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think so some- Often we get focused on the, okay, did he reach the big leagues? Was he successful there? And just focusing solely on the baseball outcomes, not what's really important, which is, you know, this can be pretty life-changing for a lot of people. And that's one of the, the really cool things about scouts is they really do change lives. Even if a guy doesn't reach the big leagues, that's a great example of, you know, whether it was the money, whether it was the education, you know, just the opportunity that the scouts help them, you know, get really, really can can make an impact on, on the lives of them and their families. And in a lot of ways, uh, that, that is the most uh, rewarding aspect of scouting, to be sure. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, just a wealth of stories and knowledge. And uh, we really, really appreciate it.
1: Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity, Kyle. and look forward to chatting with you again.
0: Once again, that was former Mariners International Scouting Director, Tim Kissner. Uh, again, just really, really cool experiences. I mean, you talk about scouting guys domestically, going over to Japan, what that contrast was like, the advanced scouting story when he was working for the Phillies, you know, and all the way through to to what he talked about. First of all, some of his crazy stories. Uh, Not every day you hear about a guy being uh, escorted out of the country uh, for safety reasons by the equivalent of the Venezuelan FBI because you're there uh, when a coup is going uh, going on. So uh, certainly a a pretty, pretty entertaining and, and wild background through baseball. And, Um, I thought his last point was really, really important, you know, talking about, you know, one of his proudest moments of a guy he signed, you know, it wasn't signing a a superstar face the franchise, it was signing a guy who didn't make it. But just because he was drafted and and received his signing bonus, he was able to make a better life for himself and his family. And I think that's a really, really important thing to note here with these scouts, is they really do improve these kids' lives in a lot of ways. I thought that story really drove it home. It's great to have Tim on. He's currently out of the game right now. Uh, he's actually working as a police officer for uh, the Juneau police department, but obviously he has a wealth of knowledge and information to share. And he's he's a great baseball mind and someone we've enjoyed talking to over the years here at baseball America. We were very grateful for him to uh, join us today. Once again, this has been an episode of behind the plate a podcast presented by baseball America. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening. I would love to hear from you. For Tim Kistner, I'm your host, Kyle Glazer. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.